Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 60. We talk a lot on Parallel about broadening accessibility by broadening and deepening the role of people who are not traditional white male people who tend to dominate the tech workplace. We've especially talked about how important it is to increase the number of women and people with disabilities, many of whom also happen to be women, who have the opportunity to pursue technical careers and to influence what gets built and how inclusive it is. Something we haven't spoken about here are challenges faced by indigenous populations, whether in the United States where I live or elsewhere. That's why I'm really looking forward to talking to my guest today. Her name is Jace Mayer, and she is the executive director of the Indigenous Innovation Institute in British Columbia. She authored a national STEM education strategy influencing the outreach programs of 33 post-secondary institutions through her previous work with Actua Canada. In 2019, while working with Shopify, she created her role as the lead for Indigenous entrepreneurs and formed a global network of Indigenous entrepreneurship education hubs to support the rise of Indigenous economic well-being globally. And Jace, welcome to Parallel. And I realize that that is a very small portion of your extensive bio. (laughs) It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Shelley. I really appreciate the platform and the chance just to get to unpack this really big conversation together today. It, it is a big conversation. And, and I think a good way to get started might be for you to tell our audience a little bit about the Indigenous Innovation Institute and what your work there is all about. Certainly, yeah. The Indigenous Innovation Institute really is in response to about a decade's worth of work that's been led by the First Nations Technology Council, which is a mandated First Nations service organization um, located in British Columbia uh, with the responsibility to, to serve all 203 First Nations communities across that province uh, in the areas of technology platforming, skills development and training, and general advocacy uh, work for nations and how they intersect, connect uh, with industry and government. What should we know about Indigenous people in British Columbia and in, in Canada? I'm, I imagine that there are communities that are primarily Indigenous, whereas there are there also are going to be people who are living elsewhere in, in Canada. Is that is that right? Yeah, we're the fastest growing demographic uh, in what is today called Canada, right from coast to coast to coast. Um, We have folks living still in the reserve systems that were created by the colonial construct of Canada. Um, But uh, in today's world, many of our folks are are more urban uh, living um, uh, peoples. Uh, uh, That being said, though, um, you might assume that we're all connected to the internet and we all have equal access to you know things like clean water and uh, schools but that's really not the case uh, you know the effects of colonization and genocide over people are still deeply felt um, by folks today one third of communities are only have access to the internet today so the majority of people still aren't platformed don't have access to clean drinking water and are still living the effects of the Indian Act, which is uh, a current policy still uh, empowered by by Canada uh, and and deeply impacting the economic uh, and uh, social well-being of Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. 
that's such a challenge because you talk about one third of the people having internet, which is an incredibly low figure, but you're also talking about lack of access to drinking water, which is even more fundamental. And it, it seems like such a such an incredible challenge to try and solve those and what I assume are other problems related to poverty and, and figuring out how you prioritize those solutions must be quite the challenge for people who do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And as an educator by training, you know, I, I've studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, which is really actually based off of Blackfoot teaching, um, which recognizes that we don't reach our full um, potential. We can't self-actualize. We don't uh, create the conditions for cultural perpetuity if we can't address um, the basic needs of people. And, and we as Indigenous people had those basic needs met and cared for and supported in perpetuity before colonization. So this isn't about Indigenous people getting access for the first time. This is about Indigenous people getting to reclaim um, what was once true uh, and in the last 150 years of what is today called Canada, um, that where we've lost a lot of those inherent rights, where we were relocated um, to some of the worst parts of real estate uh, in, in this country and, and where we still see industry um, having damaging effects on our access to clean drinking water and homes and, and things like that. So what are the things that are most important when we think about getting more technology into the hands of Indigenous people, whether it literally be internet or obviously there's all sorts of infrastructure that supports that, whether it be devices or whether it be training to, to use those devices properly. I mean, it's a really daunting, it's a big challenge. It's a wicked problem. Yeah. <laughs> no easy task. And, and I think like we really need to recognize that it's not just indigenous people plus hardware equals, um, you know, our increased representation in these sectors. Um, when we don't have those basic infrastructure, um, pieces in place. So a lot of the work that we're doing is to try and create um, an indigenous perspective on what digital equity means and, and what is the strategy that gets us there, you know, in the next five years, we, we don't have another generation to wait while we have a huge population of people that aren't being platformed and serviced in, in basic ways. So uh, we've relied and waited on government to act. Um, you know, there's been a huge amount of advocacy work done within industry. Uh, and really what we've come to see is that it's actually only Indigenous leadership that's going to get us there. So anything that we can do to create those conditions is, is really the work of the First Nations Technology Council. And then my work in the Indigenous Innovation Institute which we're birthing from that council is to say, how do we create that last mile connectivity? How can we train connectivity champions across Turtle Island that can go in and lay that last mile of connectivity into homes? And then once homes are connected to the internet and hardware is entering community for the first time, how can people use the internet in a safe way? Uh, and then how can we continue to build on those skills so that Indigenous people don't just end up in the space of consuming um, content on the Internet and technologies, but then to become producers of that so that we can have our wisdom shared with society at large. That infrastructure part, the laying the last mile, is that about getting existing industry uh, incumbents to participate with you? Is it about more Indigenous people actually running businesses that can do that last mile? Is it all those things? 
it's all of those things. And, and yeah, we, you know, there's not one solution for all uh, communities. You know, there are, there's a huge diversity within indigenous uh, communities. So we really want to help um, communities understand what their choices are and then lead them down the path to make informed choices. So for many nations, that does look like creating their own internet service provider as a company. And, and there's huge economic benefit to doing that. Um, and for others, you know, that, that might be too daunting of a task and it's easier to try and facilitate partnerships with our telecom companies here, which have a huge monopoly on, um, on that space. That's a little different than the American experience. Right. I mean, we have giant companies too, but perhaps we have more of them. And <laughs> I, uh, I, know, I know a little bit about Canadian telecom, not a lot. We don't have to go down that rabbit hole too much. But yeah, that's my understanding is that it's it's fairly limited in terms of choices. And you have so many, so many communities that are so remote, which is a problem that's common to any country with a, with a large landmass, right? You have to string those wires a long way between where the service starts and where the people are who need it. That's right. You need to uh, cross the ocean. You need to cross the Arctic. You need to cross the mountains. You need to cross uh, minor details. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we don't have uh, two communities that look alike. Uh, so everything needs really bespoke supports and right. services for it. So what's the the education piece? And I, I assume you're you're you need people to be platformed, and you need to have the wires run or have wireless access of some kind. But but once you get that done. There's so much education to be done, both in terms of using what you now have, as well as going beyond that and training people up so that they can pursue STEM careers if they want to. I mean, that's another another big job. Huge, yeah. So we we've led our own research in this space. Uh, we're the most researched uh, group of people, uh, but uh, are are not owners of that data, and certainly didn't create the the research strategies. Um, and so the technology council has done that work, uh, you know, looking in, in our economic regions to say, what are the jobs um, that are currently available? What are the skills that are needed in those spaces? And what are those like in-demand future-proof skills that we can make sure people are prioritizing now for the future of work um, and utilizing that information and the desires of communities to see where they want to see investment in their youth made to inform what courses we create at the Institute. So we use uh, universal design principles, uh, wise practices in Indigenous education, community um, uh, story uh, stories and knowledge keepers and elders to guide our work and uh, are creating custom solutions for communities and then also offering those, those finished products, those programs to, to anyone in asynchronous um, format so that we can just get this information as widely shared as possible. Um, and, and for a lot of folks, you know, um, this is the first time they've had that experience. So our courses are designed to kind of serve up folks with a bit of a buffet of what tech careers are out there, what skills might you like, so that um, people have access to a, a wide range of what technology or technology-enabled careers could look like before they go too far down any one path. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're joined by... Uh, communities of learners uh, that look like them and their teachers look like them. So the desire here is for people to really see themselves in the in the future of their learning and the future of their work. 
And I assume one of the big choices that people have to make or one of the ways they have to see themselves is, can I do this kind of career where I live now or do I have to go to a city? Do I have to leave an indigenous community? Is there a lot of opportunity for people for for remote? Well, it may or may not be remote work, but to work where they are or do people have to, to go somewhere else to engage in tech careers? Yeah, I love that you asked that question, Shelley, because that has been the traditional path is if you want a viable career or one, you know, that's going to be, you know, economically, uh, you know, strong, you did need to leave your community to have that access. You needed to leave your community just to get to a high school, let alone a job uh, for so many indigenous communities. So we're really trying to uh, break that broken model by creating a digital first answer to the education so that people can learn where they're at anywhere, anytime, um, and, and build their learning process into the way that they're their world works. So, you know, you're not going to want to attend um, school on a day where, you know, it might be the only access to sunlight that you get if you're in an Arctic community. That's a day you're going to go out on the land. uh, And, you know, when it's cold and miserable, you might stay inside and really throw yourself into your schoolwork. So, we want to create those conditions where people can really find learning that suits themselves, where they don't have to, you know, take a bus for three hours to get to the nearest education hub. Um, and certainly where they don't feel that once they've gone through that, that they are only going to find jobs that, you know, require them to head to an, an urban center. And I, I look to um, e-commerce as, as such an equalizer because Folks get to stay within their communities, continue to be huge contributors within in the community itself and and be of service to their people, um, while also getting to share their lived experience and their craft uh, with the world on a global scale. You know, and so long as you have that Internet connection, all of that is possible. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Privacy.com. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving it out to people you don't know online. I've recently taken over managing some financial tasks for an elderly family member, and while that person trusts me implicitly, They also want to know that the financial information I have of theirs and that I transmit online is safe. And I'm concerned about being able to reassure them of that. It's one thing to protect your own financial life, but when you're responsible for someone else's who's really counting on you and needs to trust you, you have to be able to assure them that their financial data is safe and secure when it's out of their sight. And that's really scary, whether you're talking about bank information or credit card information. I've got an obligation to keep that person's information safe as well as my own. Privacy is a great way to protect your own financial information or that of somebody who's trusting you to keep their data safe. Take back control of your payments. Decide who can charge your card, how much and how often. And you can close cards at any time. Plus, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. And Privacy is partnered with the great folks at 1Password. You can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created in 1Password will have the same security benefits as your other privacy cards. 
And you can set spend limits, create single-use or merchant-locked cards whenever you want. Head to privacy.com slash parallel and sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. Go to privacy.com slash parallel and sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and Relay FM. I love the example of the Arctic community, and I, I use the term indigenous as, as a catch-all, but I want to honor what you alluded to earlier, that these communities and their cultures are individuals, individual, and I assume that there are a lot of perhaps language issues and cultural issues that that the challenge is also making sure that whatever solutions you provide are locally appropriate and, and recognize the, the culture of the particular community that you're part of. Yeah, place is such a huge part of that, Um, you know, not to pin indigenize um, the experience, but typically um, we are really connected and rooted to place. And that informs so much of our identity. Uh, You know, we see ourselves of the land, not on the land. Um, So uh, you're definitely shaped by your environment. Um, And it is definitely uh, vast and beautiful and abundant um, uh, in opportunity. And, um, and that geographic, um, you know, spread of our people and access to landscapes that urban uh, communities don't have is actually a huge opportunity that's just not being considered um, or is only seen within a deficit landscape. Are there any uh, projects that you're working on now or that you've completed that you'd like to talk about just to give people a flavor of the kind of work that you do in education, providing education and, and technology access in these communities? Yeah, I'm really proud of the work that we've done in creating a a drones technology program where people are certified to be drones operators after just five weeks of training. Uh, Typically, a training program might be three weeks in a standard setting. But again, because we're such a place-based people, we spend a lot of time out on the land and understanding our connection and relationship to land before we take our drones to the skies. Um, And the opportunity for drones technicians in community is really to center land story, land stewardship, and to create the conditions for sovereignty. You know, so many of our communities um, do not actually have equal power um, or authority um, where it is just and should be there uh, against industry and industry moves in and opens a mine or runs a, a pipeline through our territories. And drones technology is allowing us to be able to monitor um, that activity, to to actually create evidence uh, and images of what's happening on the land and just share that with the world. And our stories don't typically get heard um, or platformed. And and we haven't had the ability to just show people what's going on in these more rural, remote places. And so having this this technology in our hands creates that story. It, it, it gives us the ability to monitor um, our lands, whether that's, you know, fish count or geothermal activity or um, whether or not the ice is safe to travel on or what the caribou are up to in the Northwest Territory. So um, this technology is is rapidly growing. Um, there's so little legislation and policy in, in this space. So it's quite emergent. And to have Indigenous worldview at the table from the outset of that, to, to ensure that anybody operating a drone might be considering their connection to land in, in, a, in a different way uh, is a huge possibility for our people. So 
really proud to share that uh, our graduation rates are 98% of people are graduating that program on the first go and then go on to take, uh, you know, more, um, you know, difficult level of, of training through that. And there's a, a huge um, economic opportunity in that space that is so new. Um, often we're, we're, we're late to the party because there isn't an invitation, but in, in this, um, in this particular instance, you know, we're kind of creating the table and asking people to join us in it. But that's so interesting because you've not only gotten a technical skill, you're able to support your community and to advocate for the things that your community needs. So it's motivation on multiple levels. That's exactly it. And we all know that when we're purpose driven, our ability to commit to something is just entirely changed, right? Uh, yeah. And when you're new, you're solving intractable problems that have immediate benefit to you and your community, you're more likely to sit through a hard class or pass that test or, you know, um, even spend the money it takes to, to, you know, obtain that technology. And the work that we do, and because we're an advocate in this space and, and we can seek funding and grants and work with industry is we're creating the conditions where that's not a barrier to people. Um, so our, our programs are, are available to people on a pay what you can model, scalable, and we can provide those um, the costs of those hardwares into community so that we can prove that, you know, when there's access, they're utilized and here are the ways that they're utilized. And how do you speak to industry about the work that you do? Because obviously from the indigenous perspective, it's about community, it's about livelihood, it's about all the values that the community already has. But for industry, you're, you're coming to them and you're saying, we want opportunities for people that have been trained to, to come and join you and to come and make their livelihoods, you know, in, whether it's inside a corporation or whether it's a contractor or the corp, whatever that may be, it's obviously a really different audience. It's true. And, um, you know, first and foremost, it's about creating relationship. Uh, so few folks um, have relationship with uh, indigenous people in this country. Um, so uh, that is is a massive impact, first and foremost, is to create relationships. That's, that's at the core of indigenous epistemology. Um, but it's also to change the narrative. So often it's about... Um, you know, what, what can indigenous people extract from industry? How can industry be an enabler? What does, does industry have to offer us? And, and really we want to flip that paradigm. It's like actually industry, what do you need to learn from indigenous communities and what can we share with you? That's going to change your practices. And, and, you know, given the colonial experiences in this country, our education system hasn't been reflective of the true truth of, you know, where this country started and, and, and how that, how that looks. So we're missing a lot of truth and we're, we're desperate for reconciliation. So a lot of the the relationship building we're doing is actually based on reciprocal learning opportunities. So you tell us what, you know, is happening in the world of coding and what coding language is the future. We'll tell you about, you know, your past and the lands that your buildings exists on and, and the history that got us here today. So about shared reciprocal learning and building relationships. And do you find that industry, and obviously it's a broad brush because you're having a lot of different experiences and relationships, but do you find that industry is interested in the stories that you have to tell them, especially when it involves what they're, things in their past that might not be particularly savory? 
Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a mixed bag for sure. I, I can I can assure you that in any indigenous person that's been the first or the only person in industry will tell you that it's not easy to have that lived experience. But um, we're very fortunate in Canada to have a number of key drivers to change. So, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls um, work that was done in the last 10 years years has really given us something to pinpoint a baseline and key targets and strategies that people can implement. And, you know, your, your American listeners don't have that same um, benchmarking and, and tools. And, and while it's definitely not been heard at the swiftness that indigenous communities would like, and it's not been uptake um, in the, with the speed it, it really deserves, it is creating the conditions for people to stop and think. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, we've had uh, a number of uh, children's bodies found at the residential schools um, across um, Canada. The first being in uh, Kamloops here that, that really stopped um, people in their tracks and had people realize that this past we keep relying on is actually very current. There is an indigenous person on Turtle Island um, who hasn't been impacted by the residential school system and, and the intergenerational trauma that follows. You know, 150 years is actually a really short period of time to be a country. And that's, you know, um, your parents and parents are, you know, still impacted by those spaces. So that created a huge opportunity for people to kind of have the world shaken up a bit. That's caused a deep interest to help, you know, repair that gap and that pain and it's creating new conversations. So we're actually seeing um, folks for the first time scrambling to keep up and recognizing like, oh gosh, this really doesn't look like we're any desirable place to work or, you know, really reflective of innovation or the future of work if, if we don't have these like basic understandings within our people. So we're, we're seeing a, a huge influx of um, industry partners wanting to come and take our moving beyond inclusion training and, and making sure their staff understand the, the lived history of what is today called Canada and how that impacts their work. And and not to be too cynical, but it comes from a place of, of what I, I've seen in the United States, where the reckoning after George Floyd's killing was so much about inclusion for black Americans. And I, I guess I wonder if you feel like the work you're doing now and the, the, the listening that people are doing that maybe they weren't doing before is something that you need to take advantage of quickly. But if there's a chance that it would diffuse and people would be focused less, if you don't kind of hurry up and, you know, get yourself, you get your foot in the door, so to speak, so that they, the understanding translates into opportunities for indigenous people. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right, Shelley. You don't want to miss that opportunity. The difficult part is that um, indigenous folks that have been in this space are exhausted. They've been running a marathon mm -hmm. for years. Um, and so this influx of interest is equally exhausting and um, confirming, but I really see it as like, there's just a, a resurgence of love and, and, and whether it's George Floyd or the residential school children confirmation, um, or the pandemic, there, there seems to be a recognition that what's current state of reality isn't working for the majority of people. Um, and it's actually only really benefiting a very, very minor group of, of folks. Uh, and that collective understanding and uh, awakening is, 
is not to be missed. So you're absolutely right. We, we want to respond in love uh, and patience uh, and, and like a great teacher, uh, any chance that we get um, when we have those moments. Talk about that beyond inclusion training. What are some of the principles of that? Yeah, it really asks industry um, to meet in business in a way that they maybe never have before. So we kick that project off with an opening circle led by a knowledge keeper where people share who they are and what their name means and, you know, who are their parents. And what we see is like folks that maybe have worked together for 10 years are actually seeing themselves together for the first time. We make space for understanding, you know, who our family is, what land we come from and how that shaped us. And we open every conversation in that way um, in an Indigenous business context that's super foreign. Um, and yet, again, to my point about the pandemic, we saw more people taking the time out to say, before we begin, is everyone well? Is everyone ready for this? How are your families? How's your well-being? And just centering the people before the work. So, you know, opening in a way like that and then moving into some of the more difficult conversations to audit the, the practices of what's happening and what's not happening. And, and what can we be implementing um, in your, your processes, in your policies, um, in your products that create more conditions for inclusivity of Indigenous people and What's really interesting is the top six recommendations are actually not specific at all to Indigenous people. Again, it's just that basic universal design principles of like, are you creating equitable spaces? You know, are you giving people an opportunity to share their lived reality and be their whole person? So, you know, what's what's good for Indigenous people is really good for everybody. So we really try and help industry realize that this isn't just an investment in the future inclusion of Indigenous people within your company, but it's also going to make everybody who's currently an employee there for you feel that much more included as well. That is such a great pivot because the language you're using there is is very much like the language of accessibility and disability advocates who talk about inclusion as being a benefit to everyone, not just the person who's an employee who has a disability or the consumer or the user of a website who has a disability, but how it benefits Everyone, and so so I'd love to ask how the work that you do uh, with Indigenous folks, some of whom certainly have disabilities and accessibility needs, uh, addresses that intersectionality. Yeah, it's um, you know my background is as an educator, um, and I always leaned into spaces with youth that had exceptionality. So it's the only way I know how to view the world is that, you know, when we make uh, things better for one individual, that that we can take that learning and share it with everybody. So um, the intersectionality piece, you know, certainly, yeah, we have Indigenous folks that um, experience you know, really explicit disabilities for all kinds of reasons, both, you know, unique to the community and the population and, you know, shared with folks overall. Um, Our goal is at the Institute is never to create education programs just for Indigenous people either, because that just creates that further kind of segregation and exclusionary kind of experience we live today. But it's rather, how do we create Indigenous Um, led programs? And then how can we share that with everyone so that we see Indigenous leadership on the future of technology and society at large? And when I look to the young people of today, you know, Gen Z and and, um, 
the, the generations thereafter, I believe they're looking for a really decolonized education experience and they're completely unsatisfied with the public education system. And so I can see a resurgence in the future of Indigenous led education for all. Um, and, and what an incredible opportunity that is when we know that Indigenous people have been here since time immemorial, you know, and have 10,000 years of stewardship on this land and all of our biggest problems in the world right now um, have been experienced and solved for by Indigenous communities globally that have deep wisdoms uh, and respect their ancestors in a way that if we could share that worldview with more people, uh, we might see ourselves through 2020, 2030, 2050, uh, in a world that, you know, really has those basic um, needs met for everybody. Is there anything about Indigenous culture that people who aren't familiar with it might, that you could tell us that, that impacts the way disability is addressed, whether it be sort of a, a permanent disability like a, a inability to walk or sight loss, whatever it is, or whether it be some sort of disability that's temporary or a mental, you know, there are any number of disabilities that can be permanent or that can be temporary. And I'm just wondering if there is something about indigenous culture that we should understand about how, how disability might be viewed in those communities. Yeah, thank you for that question, Shelley. Uh, I'll share with you a little story. I was brought in to support um, a national framework for computer science education, which is not part of the K-12 uh, current curriculums um, in Canada, which are every curriculum is different between province and territory. So we have many problems to solve uh, across this country. But in trying to come up with a pan-Canadian strategy to implement computer science, we brought together uh, folks from all over, one of which was an elder from an Inuit community, so in the Arctic. And we kept talking about computer computer science and problem solving and, you know, making sure people understand how to name the problem and understand the problem and dissect the problem. And she was like, you know what? We don't even have the word problem in our language. Um, so I'm struggling to figure out how we implement computer science education if it's all about problems. <laughs> um, and what a worldview shift. Wow. Because you know, we, we center so much of our um, product development in tech around problem ID and falling in love with the problem. Um, but she shared, you know, if, if you're working in a place with um, minus 60 weather, uh, that's dark uh, three quarters of the year, um, you know, with huge hundred mile an hour winds, and you saw the world through the lens of a problem, well, you would probably be pretty disgruntled and depressed quite quickly. So that word didn't even grow within that community. Um, and I just loved the opportunity to just have such a mindset shift. You know, the language that we use shapes uh, what we believe to be possible or not possible. So to eradicate the word problem from your language takes away the focus from a negative um, perspective that your only opportunity is solution seeking, you know, and, and you can call it problem identification or you can call it solution seeking. Um, and it changes everything about how you approach approach that. So that that's one instance. And, and then to share a secondary 
story with you. I work with an incredible woman uh, named Connie who wanted to do her PhD on how to create universal design for learning in an Indigenous context uh, for youth with exceptionalities. And she wanted to write her thesis on that and couldn't because there's not enough documented evidence of disabilities within the Indigenous context because we don't perceive anyone to be disabled. We perceive everyone to be abled in multiple different ways. Um, you can even see that in the way we approach the gender continuum, you know, to be two-spirited uh, instead of, um, you know, in this binary context is to be inclusive of both of those things instead of exclusive. Um, so, yeah, all of it adds to the magic of the human um, <laughs> as opposed to being a detriment or a deficit. Is there a way that that plays out when you're actually on the ground trying to provide educational assistance or solutions in a community? And you might have somebody with an exceptionality and maybe they can't read the ma- the materials that you've provided in print or maybe they have an inability to walk. So if they need to fly their drone, they have to make sure that it's wheelchair accessible or or whatever the situation is and however you regard it, there's still practical challenges that we face, right? Oh, yeah, certainly, you know, and, and we've had no chance, choice but to pivot to online learning environments um, through the pandemic, um, you know, and, and we just welcomed in a student who isn't capital B blind, but is hard of sight. And the online Zoom experience is a challenge, Um uh, on a small laptop screen, mm-hmm. you know, and we're so used to things, you know, being an 11 or 14 size font and realizing like that was really reflective of a world where we sat next to each other in a boardroom and printed out things on paper. Um, but that's not like the standard print for things being visible on a zoom screen. So we literally stopped in that moment to say, okay, like this student first in our online spaces helped us realize that this could be better. Uh, and so we're going through a full audit on, you know, um, just the accessibility of our, our written content from a Zoom perspective. So again, every single time you're met with someone who interacts with the world in a new way, it's an opportunity to learn uh, and better those practices for all. So that's exactly what we did. We stopped and uh, reevaluated all of it and are trying to determine what is the right size font on Zoom. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and we don't have to have those answers and it's not unique to the Indigenous sure. experience at all. But um, yeah, again, it's when you perceive it as a gift as opposed to like a, a pain point, it changes the way you handle that. Um, and you don't see it as a problem. You see it as an opportunity. But it feels like the opportunity to interact with people as individuals instead of the sort of public school system, among its other many faults, is just the the warehousing of people and solutions having to fit, you know, people having to find the ways to access the solution rather than the other way around. It feels like you kind of have a an advantage in that way because you're dealing with a smaller group of individuals and you can, you know, work to, to find the solution that is right for them. Yeah, and I, I would think that's a best practice for any education. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> and so I don't, again, want to make that unique to the Indigenous community for anyone that's new to that conversation. Um, but um, yeah, you know, students aren't numbers. No person is the same. Everyone is on a different pathway um, and, and came to us with a different lived world experience. And that story and understanding that and where are their goals and where do they want to head, that is so key to understanding how to deliver an effective education for program. So we have an extensive intake process where we unpack that story with prospective students. 
And then we also circle our students, not just with uh, Indigenous educators, but also with lifestyle and well-being supports, cultural advisors, uh, key contacts in their communities that recognize the pathway that they're on. Because education is a is a risky endeavor, right? You have to admit you don't know something and then show up to go and learn it and be bad at it at the beginning and only able <laughs> to get good at it at the end. Um, you know, we forget how much um, you have to really put yourself out there to be a student, um, regardless of how old you are as well. Um, you know, that's not just young people. And in fact, it seems it gets harder as we age because we don't want to be in that naivety space. We want to be experts and good at things. Um, so we really recognize that education is a learning journey. No one takes the same path in getting there. Uh, and we all have uh, differing needs along the way. But we can't separate ourselves from what's happening in the uh, classroom, from what's happening in the world. So we make a lot of time and space to connect with the land each and every time we gather to ask people how they're doing. You know, is life happening for you right now? And how can we connect you to some supports uh, and really form community and relationship while we learn together. What else should we know about the Indigenous Innovation Institute that we haven't talked about? Yeah, we're, we're emergent. So we're in that startup space. Uh, we're trying to be extremely entrepreneurial about how we approach this work so that we're not perceiving it with what education has been, but what it could be. Um, we are hoping to create a platform approach to our work so that we are the place where you can come as a subject matter expert or an Indigenous role model and share your gifts with the world and to be appropriately and fairly compensated for that work. So we're really trying to create a shared uh, economic model through through this work. So we're just stewards of it. We're not the experts. You won't just see our people as the, you know, uh, talking heads uh, at the front of the room or on the, on the Zoom screen. Um, but really, we want to create that, that space for everybody to be recognized for their inherent gifts, because every single person has something to teach and something to offer and should be valued for that. I think that's a great way to close out. Jace Mayer, thank you so much for talking to us today on Parallel. Thank you for including us, Shelley. We really appreciate it. It was really an enlightening conversation, and I, I, I learned a lot and have thought about things in, in new ways, and I always that's always a good thing. <laughs> Thank you in my language for including us. And we will have links to some of Jace Mayer's work and to Indigenous projects in uh, British Columbia. And so uh, I, I invite you to check out the show notes when this episode airs and learn more about the work of the Indigenous Innovation Institute. Thanks again. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Parallel. You can follow and subscribe to the show at relay.fm slash parallel. You can also follow us on Twitter at Parallel Pods or follow me personally at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Always happy to take your feedback, your guest suggestions, or anything show-related you might want to chat about. See you in two weeks. Bye now.